Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, there's more to that couch or table left out on the street for the taking than you might think. A lucky find, a new canvas for a graffiti artist, a chance to reject consumerism. We'll dig into the range of meanings and experiences inspired by street furniture and hear your stories. But first, we'll learn more about a recently surfaced memo that explicitly laid out a plan for subverting the 2020 presidential election. And we'll look at what impact it could have on the House panel investigating the January 6th insurrection and on efforts to shore up weaknesses in U.S. election law. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A draft report on the results of the controversial GOP-funded vote recount in Arizona has actually reaffirmed that Joe Biden won more votes than Donald Trump. Meantime, Texas has announced a 2020 vote recount in four counties after Trump demanded it. And so Trump's efforts to save face over his election loss continue, one that has already included rejected court filings and, as we learned this week, a detailed memo that laid out a way for then-Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the election results and finagle a second term for Trump. Joining me now is Nicholas Wu, a reporter covering Congress for Politico. Nicholas Wu, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. Also with us is Philip Bump, a national correspondent for The Washington Post. Philip Bump, glad to have you on as well. Good morning. And Philip, I'll start with you. You write in your recent piece, quote, what's remarkable about the memo is that it presents a plan to subvert an American election in flat legal language. Yes, you're right, Phil. I mean, it is sort of shamelessly undemocratic. But what else about this memo made it so alarming? Can you give us the basic contours of what it said? Certainly. So there are actually two different versions of the memo. There was a two-page memo and then a six-page memo that were created by uh, an attorney named John Eastman, who'd been working for uh, then-President Trump. And and in essence, what it did is it took advantage of the fact that after the uh, Tilden Hayes election in the 19th century, when there was a lot of, uh, there was an effort to resolve a dispute over the electoral vote tally in the election, they passed a law called the Electoral Count Act. Uh, It is a notoriously messily written law uh, that normally 
doesn't really matter much because there are not efforts to try and subvert uh, the electoral college results uh, in the way that we saw in 2020. But because it is so messily written and because it's never really been challenged in court, Eastman saw an opportunity to essentially use uh, the fact that this, this law was either unconstitutional as he framed it at one point or because it was unclear in some of its guidelines to give Mike Pence then the authority under other parts of the Constitution to sort of do what he wanted. Uh, and so it was a pretty explicit, in part because Eastman apparently believed these false claims of fraud, which Trump, you know, obviously still to this day is, is claiming, Eastman essentially made the case that Mike Pence could do whatever he wanted to do with the electoral votes uh, in a way that would result in Donald Trump being reelected. Yeah, I, I should note that this actually was a worry, the messiness of this law that Ned Foley and Larry Diamond talked about on forum back in September of 2020. If listeners want to go deeper into the legal and procedural mechanisms to engineer something like this. But but obviously, Philip Bump, Vice President Pence, then Vice President Pence, did not follow the steps that were outlined in either of those memos. But does this indicate for you that we were closer to subverting the election than we previously knew. Can you talk about how Eastman was making his case and how seriously it was being taken? I mean, it was being sufficiently seriously taken that Pence actually apparently considered it. There's reporting uh, from my colleagues at the Post, uh, Bob Woodward and Robert Costin, a new book, Peril, which right. actually explores the ways in which uh, Pence had reached out to other folks, including former Vice President Dan Quayle, to essentially say, hey, what's your take on this, right? Uh, so he actually seemed to try and find a way that he might be able to do this or, or to consider you know, whether or not this was something that was possible, which by itself is, is pretty remarkable. Now, had Mike Pence on that day, on January 6th, stood up and said, you know what, we're going to do the election count my way. Uh, in Eastman's memo, there is this, this phrase, which I think is absolutely remarkable, in which he sort of says there would be howls from Democrats. And it's like, well, yeah, man, there'd be pretty significantly more than howls from Democrats if you try and essentially steal the election. So, you know, even if Pence had stood up and said that, it's not clear what happens from that point. It certainly isn't clear that the Supreme Court would go along with Eastman's interpretation. It sounds like that you also found that Eastman was really getting an airing of his views on on media, on right-wing media, even during right. a hearing called by Republican legislators in Georgia. Yeah, exactly. So Eastman was basically making this case all over the place. Now, what's important to realize is, you know, I, I spoke with uh, the Professor Foley, to whom you referred a little while ago. I spoke with him back in, in September or November. And, uh, you know, he sort of said to me, look, there are ways in which this could go south that I don't even want to bring into this world because they're just so out there. But, you know, this, there's so much room for, for, for people to butt with this. Uh, you know, that was sort of remarkable and, and struck me at the time. And so Eastman was sort of making this case as he's going to these hearings and so on and so forth. But I don't think anyone sort of seized upon it as, oh, he's actually making a case that you can sort of use this constitutionality question and the verbiage here to try and subvert the entire results of the election. It's just, it was so outside the bounds of, I think, what probably even Trump's allies were thinking. I mean, Trump himself never said, oh, we should do specifically this thing that Eastman says. I mean, it was just so complicated and, and so rooted in this, you know, this bizarre sense of what was allowed that Eastman had. Uh, that even though he was sort of promoting it, I, I don't know that it ever struck anyone as what it was that he was trying to do. Well, I'd love to get the listeners' reaction to what you're saying. What are your questions about the memo? How 
Worried are you about our legal system, our election system, after seeing the steps, our election law, I should say, after seeing the steps to subvert democracy so explicitly laid out in this way? You can share your reactions at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Nicholas Wu, I want to bring you in. You've been reporting on the congressional panel that's attempting to piece together Trump's pre-January 6 efforts to overturn his election loss. Does this memo and the reporting about it become more evidence for Congress as it investigates the events leading up to the 6th? It certainly does. And I think what this memo and a lot of the controversy around it um, highlights is, is what's kind of been an under-the-radar uh, part of what the January 6th uh, Select Committee is doing. They're not just looking at you know what happened before uh, the January 6th insurrection and on the day of, but they're also looking forward. And one thing that they're really trying to piece together is how exactly they could uh, reform something like the Electoral Count Act to clear up a lot of the confusion or any any kinds of loopholes um, that you know could potentially be exploited in it. Like we saw attempts to do so on uh, during the Electoral Count um, and and in and, and past controversies over it as well. And uh, you know, as, as as some Democrats see it, it, it shouldn't necessarily be a partisan issue. It's it's something that you know should be cleaned up um, within how the federal government functions. Uh, and and so as a result, we can ex- expect to see some sort of of uh, um, reference to this uh, whenever the committee will put out its report um, and its chair has uh, set some sort of spring um, goal for them to wrap up their investigation. That spring goal, as you've noted, is pretty fast, right? We know the committee issued its first subpoenas yesterday. Can you say more about those and and what they reveal about the the panel's direction and the timeline that they're trying to achieve, Nicholas Wu? Absolutely. It, it, It shows quite how fast the committee is trying to move with their investigation. I mean, they, they don't want to go too far into the midterms next year, especially with such a um, potentially sensitive issue and something that uh, you know, they see as something that could be politicized going into the elections. And for that matter, um, it, they're, the Democrats have uh, learned in some ways from the legal fights uh, of the Trump administration fighting over attempts to subpoena documents and witnesses that were often very, very uncooperative and and, and you know, resulted in these long, drawn-out legal battles over um, calling witnesses to testify. And as a result, you know, as we saw last night, they're, they're going straight to subpoenas with um, you know, potentially uncooperative witnesses like the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who was subpoenaed for um, documents and testimony about uh, what he knew and when he knew it about um, the January 6th insurrection. And, um, you know, we're in, and this won't be the... Uh, end of subpoenas either. We're we're expecting to see uh, many more waves of actions from the committee over the coming weeks. Yes, uh, we've got Steve Bannon being subpoenaed as well, Dan Scavino, Cash Patel. You were saying that they're guarding against some of the drawn out or even um, sort of some of the obstruction that they experienced during, so for example, when they were trying to call people for impeachment. Can you just remind us the path that they took at that time and how this is different? For example, initially, were they basically just trying to see if some of these folks that they were calling to testify would come voluntarily? Exactly. There was a whole process there. 
um, normally with uh, these kinds of congressional inquiries, you would uh, perhaps send a letter to someone basically asking nicely um, if they'll show up before the committee. And no surprise, um, many people in the Trump administration, uh, it simply ignored those requests and then ignored subpoenas when they came to. And, you know, the Trump administration went so far as to claim kind of absolute immunity in a lot of ways from um, a lot of these uh, investigations. And so um, rather than go through that whole drawn out process, um, the committee is really trying to speed things along here. I mean, the the interviews, these depositions with Bannon and other figures um, are are scheduled for three weeks from now. Wow. Well, we have listeners writing in. Curtis writes, what happened in the 2020 election and on January 6th was a test. The GOP is putting together a stronger strategy to bulletproof their subversion of the 2024 presidential election at the state level. Authoritarianism is right on our doorstep. Philip Bump, do you think Curtis's concerns are well-founded here in terms of a GOP 2024 strategy? I, I do. I, I've, uh, I've spoken with a lot of experts over the course of the past 10 months or so, uh, and, you know, on a range of topics, not even necessarily related directly to the question of the ways in which, uh, you know, th- there are efforts to try and cement uh, this this sort of power grab that we saw after the election. Uh, but the refrain that I keep hearing over and over again is, you know, this is something that is looming as a potential concern. There's a, a great opinion piece in, in the Post itself yesterday, which walked through uh, the ways in which this ought to be cause for concern. You know, and, and I don't say that. It's very easy to sound like an alarmist, uh, but it is obviously the case that even if the direct intent is not to try and subvert an election, it is the case that because there is such broad acceptance of this false and you know, not only false, but ridiculous idea that there was rampant fraud in 2020, that that is itself being used as a justification, even by people who are acting in good faith to say, well, then we need to do what we can to make sure that we don't let fraud taint our elections. And, and, you know, this is the pattern that we're seeing over and over again. And it really is cause for concern. We're talking about the Eastman memo and other developments in the investigation of the January 6th insurrection by a House panel with Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post, and Nicholas Wu, a reporter covering Congress for Politico. And you, our listeners, are weighing in with your thoughts and questions about the memo and the House investigation. How worried are you about our legal system, our election law, after seeing the steps to subvert democracy so explicitly laid out? Wondering if you have thoughts on what kind of accountability you'd like to see for people involved in these efforts. Give us a call. 866-733-6786 is the number. Our email address is forum at kqed.org. And as always, you can post comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about a two-page memo and then a six-page memo that came to light that laid out explicitly ways to overturn the election via Vice President Mike Pence. It did not come to pass, but it's raising serious questions about weaknesses in U.S. election law and in future efforts to subvert elections or to 
at least change outcomes. We're talking with Philip Bump, national correspondent at Washington Post, Nicholas Wu, reporter covering Congress for Politico, and you, our listeners. 866-733-6786 is the number. Our email address is forum at kqed.org. We're at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook. And let me go to Joe in San Jose. Hi, Joe. Hi there. Um, this is uh, such an important conversation. Uh, thank you, guys. You All three of you guys are brilliant, and it's it's a pleasure to be able to listen to you guys. Um, just the one thing that I would really hope I've heard uh, several speakers today say things like, well, this sort of shameless was a sort of a shameless attempt to subvert democracy, et cetera. And I, I would just beg you guys to be a little more careful with some of this, some of your language, because this wasn't a sort of shameless thing. This was a shameless attack on our democracy. And I think progressives tend to be want to be really nice and and kind and allow for the the skinniest possibility to be uh, recognized. But in this case, the stakes of our democracy are just too huge for us to have any equivocation when it's when the facts are before us are so clear. And it just it steers quickly into both sidesism, which is you know. <laughs> which is just something that plagues us on the progressive side because it doesn't plague anybody on the conservative side, to my knowledge. And so, and you asked what I think should happen. These people, I hope the, the wheels of justice grind slowly. I know they have to, uh, but I hope these guys um, meet their, uh, get their justice, which I hope is prison. And so far, everything that's happened regarding the January 6th seems like a, a, a barely a slap on the wrist. I mean, the number of people that did what they did and on and on and on, it's just hard to, it's hard to uh, listen to this show even and think that virtually nobody's paid a price. Mm. Well, Joe, thank you for your kind feedback. I appreciate it. And it's noted. And In fact, I will take you a step further with this comment from Matt, who writes, it is good to expose the terrible work of John Eastman in the attempted election overthrow. However, it should be noted that Forum has helped to build Eastman's platform by welcoming him as a frequent guest in past years, even though his extreme views were far outside the mainstream. And he's absolutely right. I mean, we have had the memo's author, John Eastman, on Forum several times in the past, This week, he did attempt to defend uh, his memo to KQED's Scott Schaefer, and I actually do want to play a little bit of it, not to equivocate, but to show what the argument is or the attempt to try to normalize this kind of action. And so let's let's hear a little bit from him. They were not scenarios to overturn the results of an election. They were scenarios on what to do on the assumption that the election had been fraudulently certified. That's a, a extremely important distinction that the press are just ignoring. Philippum, can I get your reaction to that? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you sure can. Look, I mean, here's the thing is that's, I'm not even saying it's dissembling necessarily, because I think Eastman legitimately believed that the election was tainted by fraud. And so this is his rationale, right? He's he's essentially saying that in the event that there is an election that is tainted by fraud, you need to have some sort of way of making sure that the illegally elected person doesn't become president. Okay, fair enough as it goes. But obviously, it was not the case that the election was tainted by fraud. And in his document, it is very clear that he is not simply putting forward a, a oh, you know, in, in the off chance that we 
decide this thing is tainted by fraud, here is a way you could go. He is instead advocating a direct path of action. As I mentioned earlier, there was both a two-page and a six-page version of the memo. And it seems pretty obvious that the two-page memo, which according to the reporting in the, in the aforementioned book uh, came first, was very partisan and very much like, ha-ha, here's how we get the election. The second six-page memo, however, was a lot more restrained in the language it used and said, okay, here's some ways in which this could go down. And my guess is that that was in part, they showed the two-page memo to Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, who balked at it. And so it may have simply been the case that, okay, they recognize this is perhaps going too far. But even in that six-page memo, it is still predicated by Eastman at the very top on this idea that fraud occurred. And furthermore, that there are all these changes to laws in states, which sort of became the default establishment rationale for, for trying to push back against the election. You know, things like, oh, well, they moved, uh, you know, uh, ballot boxes into heavily, heavily Democratic areas in Georgia, which has nothing to do at all with fraud. But that was one of the rationales used by Eastman. It's a purely partisan argument for stealing the election. And so it just it, it simply falls flat. Well, we heard Joe say that he'd like to see prison. This listener writes, you asked what consequences should happen to those involved in trying to subvert our democracy. Isn't this treason? Nicholas Wu, based on the discussions that you are hearing in Congress and even on this panel for January 6th, do you think people like Eastman will face any punishment for their involvement? It, it, it's Punishment is kind of a tricky thing since you know, the, the House of Representatives and Senate have limited abilities to actually um, punish people, but it, it's certainly possible that um, you know, investigations like the January 6th committee and um, and other probes by congressional panels could um, try to call someone like Eastman, since part of what they're trying to do with this investigation is to paint the fullest possible picture of um, not just January 6th, but what they see as um, the buildup to a lot of that, which is this um, uh, th- this uh, circulation of um, unfounded claims of election fraud and other attempts to uh, subvert um, the election. And so um, Eastman could certainly be part and parcel of that. And, uh, you know, we, we saw the first wave of subpoenas go out last night from the committee, and it's and it's very possible that um, you know, there, someone like Eastman could be included in, in future rounds as well. So basically, it sounds like the current route is public shaming Philip Bump, but as you note in your piece, um, he hasn't been shamed yet. He's giving speeches, huh? Yeah, so there is a political science convention that has a relationship with uh, the organization for which Eastman works, uh, that, where they have speakers that come and sort of speak alongside that. And there's been a push. I don't think it's been resolved yet to, to have Eastman removed from that agenda. Uh, you know, I mean, look, this is we have since January 6th in particular seen any number of people who have advocated for positions you know, nearing the line that Eastman crossed at the very least who have paid very little you know, price, most obviously being Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump spent months before the election and after the election arguing that fraud would and or had occurred. He literally did it minutes before we this program began, you know, in, in relation to Arizona, yeah. uh, you know, and he still is the front runner for the Republican nomination in 2024 at this point. So, yeah, I mean, yes, it is the case that there should be some sort of consequence uh, for, for putting forward the sort of claims that, that Eastman did, but I'm not sure how that happens. Uh, let me see if I can go to Brandon. Uh, unfortunately, for some reason, my my phone. Uh... Okay, Brandon, are you there? I am here. Okay, great. My system okay. was able to pick it up. Go right ahead. What's on your mind, Brandon? Okay. 
forum. Thank you for having me. Love the show. Uh, basically, a simple historic observation. It's that the Republicans constantly surprise us by finding ways to hold on to power that are, if not immoral, they violate mores, but frankly, are sometimes illegal. And I think generally we have to, sad to say, anticipate the worst. And with this party, unless we see a change, we can't simply look at what's happened and apply legal band-aids to prevent similar things from happening again. We have to more or less prepare for something ghastly and unheard of to happen again in the future. Hmm. And so this is, again, another way perhaps of just emphasizing the gravity of this particular problem. That's my comment. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Brandon, in Oceana. And Gabriel asks, and I think this is rhetorical, what would have happened if Pence had not certified the Electoral College count? Can you imagine the repercussions? We just have a minute or so left, Philip Bump, but you had mentioned Arizona, and I mentioned at the top that the draft report of the controversial GOP-led vote count results actually reaffirmed Biden's victory in Arizona. This afternoon, the final report will be announced at a press conference. Uh, What do you think it'll say? Are you anticipating that it could be different than the draft that is showing that, uh, that Biden won handily? No, I I think that what a lot of people who are responding to the draft that we've seen are doing is making the same mistake that that we've made for months, which is assuming that because this count reaffirms that Biden won, that that will actually influence the effort to try and undercut uh, the results in the state. But that's never been the case. I mean, it's always been the case that Biden won more votes. The claim has always been that there was something suspect about that. And so the draft report itself, and I I walked through that this morning and and actually walking through it now in another piece, uh, makes all sorts of claims, raises all sorts sorts of ways in which it's trying to question whether or not that count is itself accurate. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, if you imagine that there was fraud and, you know, let's say if there's a hundred votes and 10 of them were cast illegally, if you count the votes again, you're still going to get the same result. But if you can prove that those 10 votes were illegal, then that's the problem. And so that's really what this report does. And so there's a lot of focus on this top line result. But the real issue is that they continue to raise baselessly and without actually proving this, which I thought was the whole point of the audit, raise these additional questions about, oh, well, we can't trust these results for one reason or another. And we're already seeing Trump and others glom onto that as a rationale for undercutting the entire result in Maricopa County. That's what we're going to see happen undoubtedly uh, at this hearing coming up in, in hmm. a little bit. Well, thank you for giving us some context with which to take in whatever is announced later this afternoon. And also, thank you, Nicholas Wu, for giving us some context for what the January 6th House panel is looking into and what could come of that as we continue to see these developments uh, of attempts to overturn and subvert the 2020 election. Nicholas Wu, reporter covering Congress for Politico. Also with us was Philip Bump, a national correspondent for The Washington Post. I thank both of you. Stay with us for more Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.